So if you could this morning, I'd like for you to stand with me and we'll continue our study in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 and we'll begin with verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to come to your word. Pray that you'd hide me behind the cross so that those who hear this morning will be able to see the glory of the gospel Pray that you would have your way as we peer into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So today is New Year's Eve, and likely there are churches and other places in the city who are reflecting on 2017 and likely pastors and preachers who stand in the pulpit and prepare to preach somewhat of a word of encouragement and to consider joyfully all that God has done and open up a text to provide some sort of a hopeful outlook on what is to come next year. And here at Cornerstone Community Church, God has led us here to this text in Hebrews chapter 10. I assure you that no preacher, no pastor wants to preach this text or is excited to preach this text. But what I would hope is that what remains is a conviction to hold fast to God's word and to submit ourselves to what he would have us to know what he would have us to consider, what he would have us to believe as we aspire to continue to grow up into maturity in Christ. So with that, look at this text today. And there's been a lot of different things I've thought about in preparation, meditating on the scripture and studying and praying. But one question kind of sprung to mind in the midst of this study, and I'll pose it to you. You don't have to answer it. But I'd like you to consider the question of how you would describe God, how you as an individual would describe 
the God of the Bible. If you were asked by someone from another country or someone from a different context to help them understand the God of Scripture, where would you begin? What would be the first thing that comes to mind? How would the conversation start if that question was asked? Now, wherever your mind goes right now or however you've answered that question personally right now for yourself, I'm willing to bet you wouldn't begin by explaining how angry God is. I'm willing to wager that you wouldn't start there. And for many of us in our efforts to develop this complete picture of who God is based on what Scripture teaches us and how Scripture makes him knowable to us, we may stop short at part of this study to determine how angry God is or to consider an angry God. In the campaign to make God known in the earth, we may figure that the last thing people need to know is about an angry God. I'll lay a couple of texts before you to at least give us some foundation for how Scripture talks about God in this way. Book of Nahum, chapter 1, verse 2 says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Psalm 7, verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. The King James Version says, God is angry with the wicked every day. The descriptions may come to your mind when the question is asked how to describe God. He is loving. That's true. He is merciful. And it's true. He is full of grace. That is true. All at the same time, he is angry. When we settle on a view of God primarily propped up by our sensibilities and our comforts, what happens is, is that we may invite the most subtle doubts of the gospel itself. And I believe this writer believes is that we need to see an angry God. I believe this writer believes that God's anger teaches us something of his justice and that his justice is reflected in his judgment. I believe this writer wants us to conclude that his anger is right, that his anger is righteousness. So as we look today at a very difficult, very sobering, and terrifying even text, we turn our eyes to a holiness and a righteousness that we cannot bear. This is not a different holiness. This is the same holy God that we find in the beauty of the sacrifice that has been prepared for us. And in Christ, we find this hope in what he has sacrificed and given up in order for us to live. That is beautiful. That is love. That is peace. That is joy. That is holiness. But what we see this morning is an expression of his holiness and righteousness that we often cringe at. One thing that we need to understand first before we proceed is that God is not arbitrarily angry for no reason. He's not just angry with no rhyme or reason. The text before us describes objects of his anger. It gives a reason for his anger. There's 
describing a specific circumstance. We're narrowing our view and our focus to see something that is being addressed, something, someone who is being judged in the presence of this angry God. So as we begin at verse 26, the writer directs us to observe the profile of those who deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth. I want to stop to to make sure we take time to unpack this profile. Because when, when we consider God's anger and God's wrath, a lot of times the fear and the trembling and the concern that we may feel goes alongside of this idea that we have constructed about eternal security. And a lot of times there are individuals who can articulate their view of eternal security and that it all hinges on what God says and what God has done. But in many cases, they may actually truly feel as if it hinges on what we do and how much we can please God and how much we can craft our own security. Everything that we learn about His grace, we know that if there's anything to find security in, if there is anything that allows our hope to be secure, it originates with God. It is completed by God and it's preserved by God. But what about those who have no security? What about those who have no hope as they face God? What about those who deliberately going on, go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth? Who are these individuals? What is this profile? Let me first say this is not necessarily the case of one who sins intermittently who, as they're wrestling against their sin nature. This is not talking about that individual. This is not the case of one who may have been found in a state of sin, who has been overtaken by temptations in that state, where they may be found concealing what they're actually going through, what they're actually wrestling with, the sin that they're given over to. This is not describing that person. This text is also not describing the case of one who falls into sin immediately after their profession of faith where they profess to know Jesus, and then maybe two or three days later, they find themselves just leaning in the direction of previous sins. This is not talking about these gray area cases. This is the profile of someone who has taken deliberate action to deny the gospel understanding what he or she is doing. This is a profile of a defiant, rebellious person who is presented with the knowledge of the truth, understands it, and yet willfully decides to walk away from it. This is the classic profile of an apostate. This profile is very conveniently framed for us in the previous verses because this apostate models a complete rejection of the verses that we just looked at last week. This context of Scripture is ironically dealing with a full assurance of faith, and it actually starts back at verse 19. So as we look at the wrath of God and the judgment upon those who are considered apostates, we find the full assurance in faith in those who are found in Christ and those who will persevere. We find their profile articulated starting in verse 19. The apostate rejects verses 19 through 25. The apostate 
if you look at verse number 22, will not draw near with a full assurance of faith. This person will deliberately reject the faith. We continue, the apostate will not have their hearts sprinkled clean. They will live their lives out of their evil conscience. It's very interesting to, to zoom in and actually call something evil and say that the outplay of what is evil is something that we can observe, that we can define, and is something that is before us as an objective reality. Their hearts will not be sprinkled clean. They will live their lives out of their evil conscience. They will not hold fast to their confession. They will willfully turn away from their confession. They will not stir others towards good works. They will not continue to meet with the body. They will be a distant discouragement to other people. They will not seek to be among the community of faith. They will not seek to encourage you and spur you along to follow after what Christ commands. For this person, for this profile, there is no sacrifice remaining for them. There's no sacrifice remaining for them. And what we should see and what this writer articulates using this profile as a very sobering and terrifying reality is that we cannot trifle with God. We cannot take God lightly. This is not something we're playing around with. This is not something that we look at and we take it or leave it. This is the God of heaven and earth making a full and final determination on what is right. And there is a legitimate terror to facing him under these circumstances. There's no sacrifice that remains for this person. There's only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fire that consumes. That's what this text is telling us. This is me standing before you proclaiming to you what the Word of God is saying. There is no sacrifice that remains for this person. There's only a fearful expectation of judgment, a fire that consumes. Those of us who are part of the community of faith and believe when Jesus says that we are his friends, we, are, we have peace with God. Those of us who believe that must also be convinced that God has enemies. We are not all his friends. We are not all at peace with him. God has adversaries. We dealt with this earlier in the chapter when we, we talked about the footstool, that he will make his enemies his footstool. The enemies who will become his footstool will face the full might of a power that will crumble the very expanse of our sky. This is God. 
The very same God that invites you in, makes a way where there is no way for you to be saved, shows you the, uh, the amount of love and grace that you could have never conceived of yourself, is also the God who fills the heavens with his rage and his wrath in a fire that consumes all things. We can reflect on that in the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 3. The promises given to us that he will not flood the earth, but the next judgment that will come, and I won't read it now, is fire that consumes and rolls from the heavens. This is the God who judges and brings justice. But what I do want to read to you is to continue from the book of Nahum, chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. This is how the Word of God speaks about God Himself. The mountains quake before Him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before Him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness." cannot trifle with God. Even those of us who take refuge in Him find moments where we read verses like these, and we must take an opportunity to tremble in awe of His power. One of the words that I'm, I'm trying to use less is the word awesome. Because awesome is supposed to mean something. And it's not awesome to get some money taken off my order at a restaurant. It's not awesome to find a deal on a new car. What is awesome is the thundering all-consuming power of God on full display. It inspires and evokes awe, even to those as we see and we recognize that this is a profile of an individual who has no hope before God. They're going to stand before his holy anger, and they have no chance. There's no sacrifice. They're going to feel the fury of his wrath. Even those of us who take refuge in him must stand in awe of his power. We tremble because this anger is directed at this person going on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. The terror of facing God, the severity of facing God in this way still begs a bit of fleshing out, and this writer continues along this line of thought. He uses a system of logic by which we understand this offense from lesser and greater. As we've walked through Hebrews, we've, we've been continuing in this very system where we've looked at the old covenant in the form of the lesser, and we look at the new covenant in the form of the greater. So again, he points back at the old covenant as the lesser. He says in verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. The law of Moses reveals the truth of God's righteousness, lesser, where the grace of God in Christ 
is the greater. Within the law of Moses, the punishment of crime for certain offenses required death without mercy, without appeal. You can read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, and you can see on the witness of, of two or three witnesses, there could be a charge of adultery or idolatry or blasphemy of some sort. In the end of that charge, two witnesses in play. Punishment is death. No appeal, no mercy. That's the lesser. How much more a rejection of the sacrifice of Christ? That's this logic the writer is using here. How much worse punishment do you think? And note the language here. How much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? God's anger has a reason. This is not arbitrary anger. What is the charge that stands before the high council of the holy God is trampling the Son of God underfoot, profaning the blood of the covenant by which Christ is sanctified, and outraging the Spirit of grace. Anger from God is informed by the ultimate defiling of the most sacred of all things. This isn't just this take it or leave it gospel and then we, we go about our lives and experience temporal consequences because we just avoided a better life by rejecting Christ. To reject and utterly disregard the one sacrifice that is the only hope for man invokes the full wrath of God, and he will take vengeance. He will judge. See, God is not going to count on us to see how serious this is. He's not going to count on us to come to the conclusion to say, yeah, that, that deserves a harsh punishment. Not too harsh, but I can see why you're upset. He's not going to leave it to man to conceive what kind of righteousness should be displayed at the judgment seat. He's going to leave it to himself. He is going to execute vengeance. He will judge with the full weight of his righteousness this person. as the writer immediately reflects after writing that passage, that verse, after writing verse 29, after writing verse 30, he writes in verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Literal translation of that verse is, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, while this is a truth we shouldn't necessarily find joy in, and while this is a, a this, this could be considered the greatest sorrow that we could uncover, our response is that we must bow before the counsel of our, our, of, of our almighty God in a quiet thankfulness. Quiet thankfulness because we know and we can be confident that only He is worthy to make such a judgment. 
Only he is righteous enough to come to this conclusion of justice. We don't reflect on these words with the same kind of righteousness that permeates the holy of holies. Because we have to consider the grace that we have received. And we should read these words with reverent fear. Listen to these words from 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 8. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to replay, repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. sobering, severe reality to know that for those who reject this gospel, those who deliberately go on sinning in the face of this beautiful sacrifice that is being offered to save man, there's no other hope to be found but this gospel sobering to know that he is coming. He is coming to judge this world. His judgment is coming. The fire of his holy resolve is coming to meet each individual. It is appointed once to die for every person and then the judgment. same time, we may visit this profile and immediately attempt to distance ourselves from it. The reality is, is that there are those who will hear this today here, and then there are those who will hear gospel-saturated sermons today in other places all around the world and will still walk away willfully living lives of sin and wickedness. And God will judge them. That's the thing is we can preach this gospel. We can be ever so passionate. We can be ever, some of this could resonate ever so much. And there will be people who hear this and the severity of this, and they will literally shrug their shoulders, close their Bibles, and live their lives resolved to reject what they just heard. It will happen. It does happen. It is happening everywhere. We may not know who those individuals are. We, we may not be able to pick them out of the crowd, but they will meet God. He will take vengeance. None of us who proclaim this will take vengeance. Those who are the messengers are the messengers. They are bringing the message. They are bringing the warning. They're saying this is going to happen. But the cause of, of the seriousness that we have to consider is this, is that you will meet him. You won't meet anything else that you should consider threatening or terrifying, but if you are this person who does not follow after Christ with all of your heart, if you do not trust and place all of your hope in the gospel itself, you will meet this God who will judge righteously. He's not to be trifled with. So if you hear this today, if, if someone else hears this today, 
and they are concerned. I submit to you that that is great. I'm glad that your heart is not so hardened to where this makes you indifferent. I would encourage those who attend here to go back and listen to the sermon Tony preached on Hebrews 6, 1 through 12, a few months back. One spoiler of that sermon is that being concerned is a good thing. The writer is drawing a distinction. He's causing us to see what a full assurance in the faith offers and how we spur one another along, how we continue to meet together, how we continue to cling to our profession of faith. He established this distinction between those who will face the terrifying judgment that lies ahead and those who have fully trusted in Christ's sacrifice. And one of those ways he does this is by pointing to the faithful endurance of the saints. He continues in verse 32 and tells the readers to recall the time when they first believed. Remember the fruits of the gospel that sprung up in their moments of trial. If they are not those who deliberately continue on sinning, then he says, remember the time when you were first enlightened with the truth of the gospel. Remember what that produced in you, how you bore the shame of being a Christian, how you willfully sacrificed to help those in need, how you allowed even the plundering of your property. Remember how adversity created more faith in you, how you responded in trusting in Jesus even that much more deeply. Why did they suffer these things? Why did this kind of response start to happen in them in the face of all of this this turmoil around them? Why was this happening in these individuals? Because these people knew that they had a better possession and a reward in store of them. The distinction between the Christian and the apostate is that the cares of life will not choke out the seed of the Word of God. The seed takes root and it produces fruit. It builds that confidence. It builds that assurance. And so he exhorts them, as I exhort you now, don't throw away your confidence. Don't throw away your confidence. Only know what God has done to produce these evidences of His grace in your life. One of the greatest evidences of the faith is endurance, this resolve to endure despite all of the pain and hardship of this life. You may not be facing the plundering of your property, but you may be facing severe disappointments. You may be facing the moment where you decide between nominalism and an outright sacrificial love that gives your life completely, surrenders your life completely over to the cause of Christ. He exhorts them to not throw away their confidence Reflect on the evidences of grace in your life. Have a tenacity about clinging to this profession of faith. Continue to meet together. Continue to build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Establishing opportunities to be encouraged by one another and endure. We don't give up our faith in the face of trial or temptation. We endure. We continue We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed by the cares of this life. We are those who trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and don't lean on our own understanding. A few reflections I'd like to leave you with 
in light of this text. I'd like to submit to you that we, we ought to find relief that God is angry. A couple of different ways. We ought to find relief that God is angry because he's a God of justice. Therefore, he is angry at injustice. His, judge, his justice judges against the rejection of the gospel. And yet that plays out in a number of different ways. It could play out in this explicit rejection of the details and the content of the gospel message, and it also can play out in the way that you express your belief in the gospel. The way that you attach yourself to what Scripture teaches is right. If you reject those things, then how can you then say that you are a believer of the gospel, a follower of Christ, if you are actively rejecting His law? How this often plays out among Christians is that we have strong opinions or sometimes political affiliations that we allow to supersede what God's Word has actually taught us. I want to, to, to let you know or to, to share with you that God's cause is greater than our cause. Sometimes we may look at these scriptures of justice and judgment and his wrath coming and, and completely wiping out sin, and we, we think that it's just for us. Yay, God, go do it. I can't wait till you wiped out all these evil people. God's judgment is to avenge his cause more than our cause. So whatever your camp is, whatever your cause is, whatever you feel strongly about, you can be assured of the fact that God's righteousness sits on top of that. And his judgment, his justice overtakes whatever your opinion is, whatever your political perspective is, whatever your passion is. His love is greater than that. His justice is more full and final than that. I find relief that God is angry at injustice. I find relief that every wicked politician who uses power to oppress and cause sufferings of a nation, that every rapist and human trafficker that has enacted a violent removal of another person's sexual dignity, that every white supremacist and segregationist who has beaten, lynched, and degraded the humanity of black people in this country, that every abortionist who has callously advocated for the dismemberment and murder of human beings at their most fragile and vulnerable state, that every doctor who steals money from unassuming families, carrying them about with shadow diagnoses and fraudulent medical claims that further cause health problems, that every false prophet that stands in pulpits like these spouting lies and manipulations to deceive millions towards a false gospel and a false Christ will meet the living God. I find relief in that, that we don't live pointless lives that will never face justice. You will meet the living God. And this is our faith that convinces us of Christ's coming judgment that causes us to persevere. Secondly, I'm glad that God is angry because it is our hope in the gospel. He poured out his wrath on his only son most horrifying picture that we have that shows us what God thinks of sin is Jesus bearing God's wrath 
on the cross to present the only sacrifice that could make a way for man to have peace with God. He didn't just give him a drop of wrath. He didn't just give him a sliver of his anger. He poured out the full weight of his wrath to crush his son for us. His wrath was appeased at the cross. And this is the propitiation of the Son of God. That God is pleased forever because of what Jesus has done. And we are found guiltless because of Jesus' holy endurance. We live because of him alone. This is the very spirit of grace that we be fools to insult. He places all his enemies at his footstool. And by his grace, he will glorify those who overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. This is hope. This is joy. This is relief. This is our gospel. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. As I was studying a bit about this sermon and why it was significant for its time, one of the commentators pointed towards a practice of the day and gave some context as to why Jonathan Edwards would preach this kind of a sermon. Well, he was preaching to those who were deceived under this false sense of relief found in what's called the halfway covenant. The halfway covenant was this practice where Puritans would allow for certain people who were children of unconverted people to be baptized and to assume membership in the church. So you had all these unconverted people who lived in the community The Puritans wanted to still exercise the influence of the church in this community. So in this grand display of seeker-sensitiveness in colonial times, they said, come one, come all. You don't even have to be converted. Just come in and do some of the religious practices that other Christians do, except for the Lord's Supper because we don't want to offend God in that way. So Jonathan Edwards is preaching to a church full of unconverted people who were convinced that they were all right because the Puritans said they could have membership based on a few short stipulations. Not only they could have membership, but their kids, because they had already been baptized, their kids are going to be all right. And Jonathan Edwards decides to preach sinners in the hands of an angry God. Now, Edwards had his flaws. He had a lot of complicated things that were a part of his belief system. But when I, when I read about this, I'm, I'm moved by Edwards' passion because he pointed not to a halfway covenant, but a true and full and complete covenant. This sacrifice in Christ that was our only means of righteousness. And it was this passion that spurs along this title. It was his concern for the souls of the people that spurred along this kind of preaching. I would hope that we hear about an angry God in the same way that we'd appreciate this writer preserved for us to read about a gospel that is full and complete and a confidence that we can cling to in a true and lasting covenant. Because without which, there's no sacrifice that remains. 
There's no sacrifice that remains without the precious shed blood of Jesus Christ. We're going to go into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together. Those of us who are believers, those of us who find refuge in Christ, taking the Lord's Supper together. And just as the writer here tells the people as a measure of their assurance, he tells them to remember. That's what the Lord's Supper is, and it's an expression of remembering what Jesus has done. So as we take these elements, I pray we remember together what Christ has done for all of us and for each of us. His blood poured out was enough. The precious blood of Jesus is our hope. It is our future. His body was broken to assure that we have wholeness in Jesus. If you don't know Jesus this this morning, I, I encourage you to take of him Look to him. Don't look to the elements. Don't look to the bread and the cup or feel offended if it's time to pass over you. But take Jesus. Take him. And then celebrate with us. Celebrate with the community of faith in taking these elements, knowing the evidences are alive in you. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. I am a broken vessel, God. I am in awe of what you have written, what you have preserved for us to know about the true and living God. I pray that you'd help us to remember your faithfulness. I pray that you'd help us to remember the moment you opened our eyes to the truth and that you would cause us to endure in that truth. Thank you that you are a righteous judge, that your justice is greater than our justice. We humbly revere your judgment. thank you for the hope we have in Christ. As we conclude one year and we walk into another one, I pray that you would arrest our hearts and minds what it means to truly follow after Christ, to lay our lives down in light of the mercies of God, to present our bodies as living sacrifices, to love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.